Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalene Ball and today's guest is Vanessa Berry, zine author and uh, author of 99, artist, many other things. Vanessa, welcome. Oh, thank you. Now, before we begin chatting, can I just ask you to open the show to, by reading to us a little from 99, just to give listeners a taste of your work? Sure. So I'm going to read something from the story Band T-Shirt, which is the second story in 99, and actually the first story I wrote for it, long before it actually even um, became a, a book or even thought of a book, really. So this story is about the Band T-Shirt I wore when I was a teenager. In the 1990s, band t-shirts were a kind of code allowing you to reveal your secret identity to others. Your secret identity was a person of discerning taste who spurned the mainstream and had a deep understanding of the perils of being like everyone else. Sightings of someone wearing a super chunk or butthole surfers t-shirt could inspire a thrill, almost a panic, that you were not alone. Before I wore band t-shirts, My style was a mismatch of influences inspired by such diverse sources as my high school art teacher who wore fluoro tutus and spiked her black hair up like a pineapple and Ellie Sheedy as the basket case girl in the breakfast club with her shapeless black clothes and hair covering her eyes. Then when I became a music fan, my choices were inevitable. Every band I heard on the radio seemed to have a t-shirt to match. The first band shirt I owned was a Cure shirt. As many teenagers do, I felt despair over my appearance, which was awkwardly young, no matter what I wore. I never seemed to be able to choose clothes that fitted in with the other people my age, and I soon stopped trying. Music had fast become the most important thing in my life, and The Cure were my first deep musical obsession. The Cure wrote songs about yearning, sadness, and most of all, love, and they evoked these feelings in a way that was mythical and magical. They had their own alternate reality with their bird's nest hairdos and lipstick and their strange dress-up videos full of curious things, taxidermy cats and Chinese dragons, giant spiders and blue apples, paddling pools and bear suits. The more I found out about the cure, the more I was drawn into their world. As a teenager, Robert Smith had been suspended from school for being an undesirable influence with his long hair and habit of wearing a floor-length women's fur coat He would go on to influence millions of people, although there was something about the cure that made me feel they existed for me alone, or at least I had a special connection to them. Cure fans had a lot of merchandise to choose from, posters, postcards and t-shirts. I wanted the classic disintegration shirt with the picture of the album cover on it, Robert Smith's face floating among flowers printed on a black background. On the day I went to buy my Cure shirt from Virgin Records in Pitt Street Mall, however, there were only white shirts with the band standing in the snow underneath palm trees, a still from the pictures of you video clip. I liked the tinkling wind chime sound of the song, but it wasn't one I would have chosen as a favourite. I bought the shirt anyway. I'd been saving up for quite some time and couldn't bear to go home empty-handed. I debuted the shirt on an outing to a basketball game at the entertainment centre with my friend Rachel and the youth group from her family's church. I hated all forms of sport and had grown up in a non-religious household. Up until this point, I had consistently refused all youth group offers and thought it was time to at least try it. I accepted her invitation. Rachel understood me the best of all my friends from school and she, at least, would be on my side. I thought teenage Christians would be kind, forgiving and gentle, but I underestimated the power of hormones. The most important thing was who was in and who was out. 
Nathan, the guy who seemed to be the most popular member of the youth group, immediately told me my clothes were weird. I was proud. My cure shirt had been declared a success. As we sat in the entertainment centre, watching the Sydney Kings, my thought drifted to what other, older and cooler people were doing elsewhere in the city and how one day I would be one of them. Of this destiny, I was sure. The cure shirt was the start of my new, different life. So that's from the start of 99. Okay, yes. up the story. Yeah, and, and a, good, a good start too because one of the things I was wondering about um, as I read the blog and, and started to delve a little bit deeper, you've been quite upfront about all the material behind the book. Um, did you draw, when you pulled the book together from your existing material, and band, the band t-shirt um, memoir, for example, was one of those things that was out there? Yes, I had a few things I'd written previously, although I reworked most of them substantially for the um, for the book. Um, the band T-shirt story I wrote as a zine first, and and kind of how the book came into being. Because when I wrote the zine, so um, so small, so if people don't know what a zine is, so a small self-published. Um, photocopy magazine, I guess. It's the easiest way to describe it. So I wrote one about all the band t-shirts I'd had as um, a teenager. And when I wrote that, I realized I had lots more to write. So I wrote this, um, it was kind of an annotated list in a way. So all of the ones I'd had from the first QO one I had to the last one I had. And it spanned about 10 years, my whole teenage years. Um, and so when I wrote that, I had ideas for more things I could write. And I noted them all down thinking, oh, one day I might write that if you know, I get a chance to. And then the opportunity to write this book for Giramondo came up. And I, I realized I did, when they asked me, did I have an idea I wanted to uh, pitch to them? I did. And it, it was this idea. Um, so the band t-shirt kind of started the, the ideas in my mind for how I could shape a story about that time in my life beyond just the band t-shirts um, and write about it in a bit more depth. Mm. And Giramondo actually approached you what, through the, the blog and the zines? Yes, well, they knew of my work um, previously. So Chiramondo um, used to publish... The hello? Oh, hello. Okay, we're back on. <laughs> Vanessa, okay. yes. we're back on. Okay, sorry, listeners, for that brief delay. Um, we had a technical error, but we are back on and we'll talk more about technical issues later. <laughs> okay. Vanessa, sorry to interrupt you. Please go ahead with your story. That's fine. So I was just talking about how um, the length of 99, so kind of novella size, which fits in with the Giramondo short series, which is all books around, around that size, um, fits in with the story that I wanted to tell. Um, and it's a, I like the format too. It's kind of a... a the shape of the book is kind of a small, it's almost like a CD which sort of fit with the story I was writing too, very much about music and music ephemera and things like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and all the little pictures through it too, it, that, that really gives it this, um, this lovely kind of, I won't say homemade because it's quite professional, but um, it does give it a kind of funky feel. Yeah, so I drew, I wanted to illustrate the book and draw illustrations for it. I mean, I'm, my artistic abilities, um, well, I'm not as confident with drawing as I am with writing, let's just say that. But I was happy with how the pictures turned out. And I think because I was writing about a time, you know, in my life, so I was a teenager, um, the drawings seemed to fit it in some way, like making it a bit like a scrapbook and kind of evoking a bit of that, that time. Um, and it is very much about objects 
as well. So I do a lot of my writing based around particular themes and using them as kind of triggers for wider stories. And so the illustrations were a chance to um, put some of those in. Mm. As I was reading the book too, I, I began to remember that, I, I don't know, maybe there's a mis perception out there, maybe it was just me, but you know, the nineties was kind of um, you know, uh, not the greatest period for music. And and then I started to read your book and I thought, No, it was, it was, it was a great time. Um, do you still feel nostalgic about the nineties? Oh, I don't really, I don't particularly feel nostalgic about it in the sense that I'd want to return. In fact, I really wouldn't want to return to the 90s and um, I would, definitely wouldn't want to return to, be, to being a teenager. I mean, for all the great things about it, like, you know, discovering things and um, there was a lot of loneliness and um, not knowing who I, I was around that. But in terms of the more cultural um, aspects of it, it was funny because at the time I didn't feel like I was living through a time that was even very distinct or even had a particular identity. And I think a lot of um, young people can yearn for a past that, that's kind of things that have preceded them because in the 90s I um I thought well you know all the exciting stuff happened in the 1970s like because I was into punk music so I thought oh we you know all the punk stuff that happened in the late 1970s which was when I was born you know I've missed that and things happening in the 1980s as well mm. so I felt like I'd missed out on an exciting era it's only really with time that I look back and see that yes the 90s did have a distinct um kind of feeling and distinct things happening and in fact it was only kind of recently when the styles and the music started to get revived as does happen um, usually about 20 years afterwards um, but it made me think about it a bit more and 99 comes from that a bit too so reflecting on it you know as I see things being revived yeah, and and it's so funny because growing up in the 80s, I, I often, or 70s and 80s really for me, I often look back and thought, you know, everything happened in the 60s. So it's, I think that's pretty classic, that feeling of having missed the, the big stuff. Yes, and I've, since I've written 99, I've heard from a few teenagers who've written me letters. I always put my address in things I publish, even if it's a book. And um, I got one letter from a teenager who'd said, oh, I wish I'd had your life in the 90s. I wish I'd grown up in the 90s. And it was a, it was a, a lovely thing to hear, but it was also a bit funny to me because at the time I, I didn't feel like I had a life that anyone would particularly want. Like it wasn't a terrible life, but it wasn't, didn't feel particularly interesting while I was living it. Yeah, the, the one of the things that's so appealing to me about the book, um, and, and probably appealing about about your writing in general, is this this idea of, of a shared, I guess, a shared perspective. You know, one feels, oh, that was me too. You know, and I think a lot of readers get that. You know, I was like that too. There's sort of a shared loneliness in a way. Yeah, well, that's what I was. It's nice that you say that because that's what I was hoping to to get at with this book. So I was writing about my teenage years. As I said, they weren't particularly extraordinary in that nothing, even that dramatic, really happened. But I found it interesting to try to write really specifically about how it felt to be that age and in that time. And I knew there were particular things that other people felt. Too. So things like that particular sense of teenage loneliness that you only ever really feel as a teenager, which is part of kind of discovering your identity and working out who you are. I think every teenager feels it no matter um, how popular or, or not they are. So things like that I really tried to get at. And then also the feelings of discovering things. Uh, and for me it was music. I feel like most teenagers find something which connects them to the world and other people in some way. And it can be anything. It can be sport. It can be music. It can be creative things. 
Mm. It can be a particular interest. But for me, it was music. But I think there's something kind of deeper than just me being a music fan. It's finding a thing that makes you feel connected and excited about you know, who you are and who you might be. Yes, the tribe, even if it's a tribe of non-tribal people. Yes, yes, yes. You need to find your people in, in some way. Yeah. Um, another theme that seems to run through the book, and, and you alluded on this as well in that first chapter you read, was this conjunction of the mythical and the domestic, really. Oh, yes. I, I, I've mentioned a few times in the book like the idea of there being some kind of secret escape hatch or some kind of secret door within the suburbs where I lived. Not like a physical door, of course, but... I mean, I grew up in a fairly typical suburban environment. Um, wasn't very, you know, there wasn't really anything particularly exciting around to do when you just kind of um, stayed at home or maybe wandered to the park or something. Um, so I found in music and listening to the radio and discovering these particular bands, so mostly kind of underground bands, so punk or goth bands, subcultural influences, um, so I found that as kind of a metaphorical door into another way of being or thinking about, you know, how else, how other people could live or how I might want to live. So, yeah, in the band T-shirt story I read, I was watching this basketball game, which I found incredibly boring, by the way, but I just thought, wow, I'm in the middle of the city. I'm close to people who are living exciting lives. One day I will be one of them. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, the overt thing, of course, the thing that um, you immediately focus on is is all these bands that we all know and, and you know, some of us grew up with. But there's some sub-stories going on, too. Um, for example, one of the things that really caught my eye and very subtly woven through there is this um, the sister relationship between you and your, your musician sister. Um, it was quite interesting to me because she's so clearly different, and yet, you know, her... Her music and your music, even though they're completely different, I wonder if there weren't some odd parallels. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, and a lot of the things that I um, I was interested in kind of in some way came off the back of what she was doing. So she played like she played the viola and sung, so very much that kind of classical music tradition and was quite talented and sort of did a lot of things. She sung in a choir and um, was always going off to music lessons. And the things like when she went to the choir, I would take her sometimes. Um, and it was in Surrey Hills in the city in Sydney. And um, in the break, while she was you know, while she was singing, I, I'd just be sitting around and I'd rush off to the punk music store nearby to go and look at the records there. So they had a kind of funny relationship. Her more condoned, I have to say, her her um her musical activities were more condoned by by my mum. That almost seemed part of it too, the good good girl, bad girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't quite so clear cut, but it does come out like that in in the book. Um, that, yeah, it was a, a funny kind of, um, of um, I guess, similarity in, in some ways. And I didn't quite realise it until I, I started writing the book how often these, these two things kind of, um, yeah, came along together. Yeah, yeah. So looking back, and, and even as you were writing the book, were, were you surprised about how much has changed since, since that period? Or, or were you surprised about how little has changed? Um, I think I felt both feelings. I mean, technologically a lot has changed and that was the thing that I reflected on the most, um, especially yeah, in terms of media. So when I was, say, you know, in my early teens, which was in the early 1990s, um, if I didn't like what was written in mainstream media, so kind of magazines, newspapers, um, 
there, there was nowhere really else to find different voices, and I eventually found those in zines. Um, but compared to now, you know, there's so much on the internet. I don't really need to explain that. But that was a big difference. That there's just not you didn't hear many vo- different kinds of voices if you were someone who wasn't happy with the kind of, um, you know the things people around you were saying or the things that might be presented to media that was pitched to people of your age. So that was a huge difference. And then, of course, there's the, the more kind of, um, in, in terms of objects, so I was writing about things like cassettes. Um, actually, I wrote a lot about cassettes because I made a lot of mixtapes and they were the kind of, that was what I collected my music on, actually, because they were the cheapest thing to buy and they've been completely outmoded, although they have had a kind of retro revival. Um, these days. So there was that technological aspect. I mean, the things that I found that, that were kind of, that hadn't changed so much were, as I was talking about before, the more kind of emotional things, the things about growing up and developing an identity and, and things like that. I think they're, they're still pretty much the same. But yes, definitely in terms of techno- technology and media, um, they're mm. very different. And that was no surprise. Yeah. Even the, the, I guess, the public self-reflection, which I guess that's the whole underlying basis of the blog. Um, this ability to kind of um, capture things and reflect in the public world, that was really novel back then, perhaps, and, and isn't. Yeah, well, well, when I found those those that in zines, so I found, I mean, zines and blogs aren't exactly the same, um, but in zines as a teenager, I found these voices for people, they just seemed real. Um, they seemed like, you know, real people who, um, you know, weren't presenting a face to the world that was highly polished. They were just being themselves, or they seemed to be. Um, and that was very rare at the time. And I liked that they were just, they seemed honest. Um, but now, yes, there's so many personal stories, voices out there that you can read. I mean, I think it's great. If I was a teenager, if I'd known that that was going to happen, I would have been very happy when I was a teenager. I mean, I probably still would have felt lonely, but at least I would have been able to um, kind of feel a bit more connected in some ways, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Although, do you ever wor- worry, and with yourself, and I guess with this this whole notion of of kind of cataloging our lives as we're living them, um, that you know we're always converting the moment into snapshots of mem- memorabilia rather than losing ourselves in those moments. We're not necessarily here. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's definitely a danger and I think the responsibility is with, with the individual, with, with you, to, to try to manage that. But it is, it can be very hard and um, that sort of living on living online can really drain you, I think, um, if you're not careful. Um, yeah. And you can end up sort of having, feeling like your experiences are kind of fodder for the online life if, if you're not careful. Yeah, I mean, I think that helps when the experience is negative. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, she picked the uh, rejection letter up and, you know, you're, you're kind of writing it as you're doing it. But um, I, I think sometimes, too, you have to force yourself to just be in the moment. Yeah, I mean, I've written about my life a, a lot. Like, in, I've kept diaries, journals since I was, hmm, not since, well, when I was a teenager I had a diary, but it was more, I'd just kind of write, you know, when I was miserable. But I started seriously keeping a journal when I was about 18 years old. And I mean, I, I still keep it, so I've got this huge stack of notebooks. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly used to, to writing about my life. I mean, what I write in my journal is not what I write on mine or on my blogs or anything, but in, in, I think I was a bit ahead of my time in terms of writing about my life, actually, and in my zines as well. I sort of, I, I sort of, yeah, write a lot about about my life in a way that people do quite um, often online now. Yeah, 
Yes, yes. So, so talk to me about the zines. What, what draws you to them, and are you still making them as artifacts, or do you, do you tend to do most of your work online? Um, I do still make them occasionally. I mean, yeah, I write about this in 1992, so I, zines become the thing which really um, puts me in touch with a community of people who I feel are, are kind of like me, or I have fun about my place in the world um, in that community, as well as in the music community. But zines um, were the thing that I mostly, like, I really felt connected to. Um, so I started making them when I was about, when I was 17, I think. So I'd read them for years and I had a period sort of from 17 to about my mid-20s where I made a lot of them. So I, I, I generated a lot of zines in that time. I wrote, my first one was called Psycho Babylon. I'd kind of write my, just my thoughts, really. And then I did a more deliberate Zine where I'd write what I did every 23rd of the month, um, called Laughter in the Town of Teacups, and I'd I'd just write everything, and they got very long by the end. I'd try to write absolutely everything I I did, I thought, I saw, um, and so I, I did them every month, and so there was a whole lot of those. There ended up being about 60 or so of those because I did it for five years or so. Um, so I mean, a lot of my zine activity was back. Um, when I was younger. I still do make them though. I, I like making them and they, they can kind of be a way of testing out ideas. So the band t-shirt story started off as a zine and that became a great way to kind of test out this idea which developed into the book. Um, so yeah, I, I might make one or two a, a year these days. Mm. Um, Are any of the old ones collector's items now? Do people kind of hoard them? I don't know, but it's funny. So the zine I made Psycho Bubble when I was a teenager, I... I didn't really think anybody would ever come up to me you know, in, when I was in my 30s and say, are you Vanessa Psycho Babble? But it does happen. And in fact, you know, it happened a, about a month ago. I was seeing a, a band and someone came up and said, are you Vanessa Psycho Babble? And I, and I was very happy to be asked that, but it's kind of funny because, it, I mean, I stopped making it when I was about 20 or 19 or 20, and I only made it for a few years. And people say they still have them occasionally. I mean, people aren't rushing up to me all the time and telling me this, but um, at least, say, three, four times a year, someone will say, oh, I kept, I kept them all. So I guess in that way they are. I mean, in the way of them going for huge prices on eBay, that, that hasn't quite happened yet. Yes, not yet. <laughs> not, yet not yet. I don't know if it ever will. But it's nice to think that people kept them, uh, actually, because really, I mean, looking at them at... They, they still seem to think that they're, they're quite, you know, quite um, reasonable and funny and things like that. But it, it's odd for me to look at them because it's something I made when I was a teenager, and it just seems a bit uh, naive or something, or a bit silly. But of course, and, and anyone looking back on things they made when they were young is going to feel a bit of a cringe, I think. Well, yes, but I think the whole notion of the artifact, or even you know, even the being able the self making the crafty part of it. I mean, as, uh, you talked about the cassettes, um, and, and you talked about them a fair bit of, in 99, and, and actually David Byrne writes a fair bit about them in his, his book, How Music Works, as well. Um, this notion of being able to recraft the work of somebody else in a very tactile sense. And I don't think we get that with electronic work, and, and then it's, it's much more ephemeral. But to have something you know, concrete like that that can actually sit on somebody's shelf or that can be kept over the years is uh, it's kind of neat. Nothing really supplants that. Yeah, I, look, I, I love physical objects. I'm somebody who really likes doing things with my hands and making stuff, which is one of the reasons why I've kept making zines, I think, because I do actually like physically putting them together. And I don't do, I mean, I type them on the computer sometimes. Sometimes I type them on a typewriter as well. 
Um, but the most I'll do is type it on the computer and then I'll, I'll actually cut and paste it together with like a glue stick and scissors because I like the process and I, I do because I do a lot of writing on the computer. It's where I do most of my writing really. Um, it's really nice to get away from the screen and, and do other other activities away from it. And do you feel that the shape and the structure and even the title of the zine can influence the writing it contains? Yes, so for example, the, the ones I type on a typewriter are called disposable camera. They call they, they called that because I, I made a zine, well, I still make it, called I Am A Camera. I started making it in the late 90s, um, and it's the title I've, I've stuck with. Um, but that's quite long, and they take a long time to write, and quite polished in a way. It's not. It's more like a kind of a... a, um, a sort of short stories or autobiographical short stories than um, than a zine really. So I, I realised it was getting a bit unzine-y so I make this other one called Disposable Camera which I type on a typewriter and that definitely is determined by typing it in that way because um, it's much slower. When I type on a computer I can kind of follow my thoughts in terms of how fast I can type on a typewriter, things are slower, I'm forced to sort of think about it more. Same with handwriting. Um, and with that zine I just type um, I write it as I go, and yeah, with a typewriter it's harder to go back and delete things, so I, I write in a more deliberate way, um, and I find that all very interesting, the different ways that I write, um, depending on what method I use, and actually, I, I mean, I, I teach writing sometimes as well, and I suggest, you know, trying different forms for, um, like, producing the text, like if you're having trouble, um, be sitting at the computer and you're typing and having trouble, maybe just get a piece of paper and start to write something instead and see if that's the thing that might unlock um, the trouble you're having. Mm. Yeah, that's a, it's a good suggestion. <laughs> so um, I think we'll, we don't have much time left, um, unfortunately, but uh, tell me, have you got something in, in hand, a new project that you're working on or some other things that you're involved in? Well, I'm often quite busy doing various different things. So I work as an artist as well as a writer, and I, I still make a zine occasionally. Um, my major project at the moment is a blog called Mirror Sydney. And so I write stories about particular unusual or unexpected or forgotten places in Sydney. Um, so I've been doing that for a few years. I did... Um, 99 has a lot of... Um, stories that are really based in places as well, which we didn't really talk about. But yeah, um, it, it's a lot about Sydney and what Sydney was like at that time too. And I, I've I've really gone towards writing about particular places and less kind of autobiographical, more kind of observational, I guess. So I, I write about particular elements in the city. So I'm just at the moment, for example, I'm writing a, a story about suburban clocks. Um, which might not sound particularly interesting, but um, it interests me. So these kind of clock towers that are, are placed here and there in the suburbs and mm. find particular ones and stories about them and things like that. But I've written about things like abandoned amusement parks, that one's very popular, tunnels and um, underground elements of the city, um, and then particular suburbs and, and things like that. So yeah, that's Mirror Sydney. Um, and I'm having an exhibition at the Penrith Regional Gallery soon that's of a story from Mirror Sydney that's about the Penrith Arcades, the Penrith Arcades project. Um, so yeah, I, I do visual things too sometimes. Mm. Well, I love, I love the words suburban clocks. There's something very good about that. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm glad you think so. <laughs> well, it's kind of metaphoric. Um, so we're nearly out of time. Um, but can you just tell those listeners who want more, and there's a lot more um, available online and, of course, your book, where's the best place to find you? 
Um, I would go first to my blog, which is called Vanessa Berry World. It's a WordPress blog. It's just vanessaberryworld.wordpress.com. But if you Google my name, Vanessa Berry, it should come up with that um, with that blog. Um, and from there, it's got links to my other projects. So there's a link to a blog that I did of things to do with 99, so various pieces of ephemera that um, that inspired and things like that. So if you're interested in seeing what kind of was behind 99, there's some things there. And my Mirror Sydney blog as well and, and various bits and pieces online. Um, there's lots out there if you are interested. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for joining us today. Um, oh, you're welcome. It's been terrific. And listeners, don't forget to tune in next month when we have another episode of the Compulsive Reader Talks. Bye for now. Bye-bye, Vanessa. Bye-bye.